Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Hello, everyone. It's Mickey here. You're listening to Wikipedia, and this week on the podcast, I speak to naturopathic doctor. Dr. Carrie Jones, all about hormones. Dr. Jones is an absolute wealth of information when it comes to hormones, and she speaks about how understanding the human body is complicated, and her job is not to judge, it is to educate and empower. And anyone that follows Dr. Carrie Jones on Instagram absolutely knows that firsthand from the wealth of information she puts out there on a daily basis. I talked to Carrie all about why our hormone health isn't a focus for us growing up in health and sex education and what that means for our understanding of our hormones, the best way to test cortisol and sex hormones, the importance of testosterone for women, some misinformation regarding women's cortisol levels compared to men, and how stress impacts our hormone levels and what to do about it. There are so many gems in this podcast. Dr. Carrie Jones, she's a naturopathic physician who is board certified in naturopathic endocrinology with a master's in public health, having over 17 years in the field of functional and integrative medicine. As a former adjunct faculty for the National University of Natural Medicine, she has taught courses in both gynecology and advanced endocrinology. She was the medical director for two large integrative clinics in Portland, Oregon, where she lives now. And she was the medical director for Precision Analytic, who are the creators of the Dutch test for almost 10 years. And Carrie and I speak about the value of the dried urine test for comprehensive hormones. She is the clinical expert for the Lifestyle Matrix Resource Center, serving the SOS Stress Recovery Program, and currently she is the head of medical education at Rupa Health. I've put links to where you can find Carrie in the show notes, and also her Instagram tag, because if you are not following her, you will want to be. Before we jump on into the interview, though, I'd just like to remind you the best way to support this podcast, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And if you feel like it, leave us a five-star review. That would be amazing. And if you do want to go that one step further, why not head on to mickeywillardin.com and click sign up to the recipe portal access where for $12 a month, what a bargain, you get weekly email from me, a regularly updated recipe library with over 900 recipes, access to a private Facebook group, written Q&A forums weekly, Facebook Lives, and the opportunity to ask me anything nutrition and health related through our online messaging platform when you create your account. All right, team, hope you enjoy this interview that I had with Dr. Carrie Jones. Dr. Carrie Jones, thank you so much for taking the time out of your afternoon to talk to me uh, today. I'm um, so excited because you share so much amazing information on social, and I believe I began following you prior to the pandemic, but I wonder how much of the pandemic did that sort of shift your focus to being a lot more on social? Were you always in that space? I was always in that space. I in, I'm, I'm rather extroverted, and I enjoy educating, and so I found that social was a good creative outlet to answer all the questions that I got all the time from people who would were like, I don't understand what this hormone does. I don't mm. understand what this hormone means. I don't know, you know, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And so it was a nice, fun, relaxing way for me to get that education out there. Yeah. Yeah. And you do such a fabulous job. And and I've listened to you on a number of podcasts as well. And you've you've described many times that you've had a strong interest in women's health right from like a very early age. Yeah. And in part, a contributing factor might have been related to your coach took sex ed for you at high yeah. school. Uh, and I had my drama teacher do it, which is, you know, not too different from as you <laughs> describe. Um has it changed at all? Like has sex ed and hormone health, has it really entered the sphere of sort of teenage life? I think social media is what's teaching a lot of our teenagers. Um, my 
my children are in their young 20s now and they, my 21 year old, all the time when she was in high school, she was like, I wish you could come teach my friends. I wish, yeah. Yeah, her friends would come over and they'd be like, can we just ask you this quick question? Can we ask you this question? Or she would text me in the day, like, is this true? Somebody just said, you know, X, Y, Z, is this true? And I think it's just as bad now, mm. at least in my experience, as it was back when you and I were going through, you know, yeah. our schooling years and learning the basics. And the difference is the exposure to the internet where they just look everything up. Yeah. Um, or unfortunately, uh, you know, social media for good or for bad, there are some really wonderful educators out there, um, practitioners who are doing a good job. Uh, and then there's all sorts of like concerning, you know, scary things out there that we don't want our kids to see. Uh, when it comes to education, oh, totally. And and I'm, I understand that you also taught at a naturopathic college in your early career. Did you learn a lot of the information that you share now on social media in um, that sort of naturopathic curriculum? Like, how did you form your basis of hormone knowledge? I learned it, yes, for sure, in the beginning. So going through school, I had a wonderful mentor. Her name was Dr. Kimberly Winstar, and she taught me a lot about hormones. That's what she focused in. I did my residency with her in women's health and hormones. So I had a lot of hands-on, practical, tactical, in-the-trenches experience, plus then got even deeper with a two-year residency. And then from there, continued to learn through practice, through my patients, and as we know, the research is ever evolving, mm. but sort of the basic physiology and biochemistry is about the same. And so um, I really got, I want to say good, at mm. understanding the basics. Like, how do you make a hormone? How do you produce progesterone? Versus vague, you will you will see, oh, progesterone comes from the ovaries. And, I, and I'm forever, I'm always the how, I'm always asking Siri on my phone. Hey, Siri, how come, why, where? My husband's like, you know, oh, in fact, Siri just popped up. <laughs> <My computer. laughs> always, she does. Always, she's always listening, dang yeah. it. Um, my husband always teases me because he's like, you're, all, you know, you, you, you're always like, I'm going to go look that up. So it became really important for me to understand the fundamentals so I could turn around and explain it to others. I had so many female patients who just mm. didn't know. I had so many female patients and friends who were like, I'm a grown adult and didn't know that. Or yeah. I'm a grown adult with children and didn't know that. I would have postmenopausal women say, you know, in their 50s or 60s or even 70s, Carrie, I didn't know that. Like, I didn't, I don't know how I managed to get through life and children or, or no children or whatever, because nobody taught me that. If I'd known mm. that, that would have made things easier. And I kept hearing that over and over. And I thought, okay, let's turn what I learned around and get it out there. Yeah. And do you feel like it is getting out there? And obviously you're right. You know, there are so many like amazing sort of educators now that are really accessible to the general sort of population and also practitioners like me who mm -hmm. like we never learn any of this stuff in, in any of my sort of education. And I'm not a naturopath and potentially that's why, but um, you've just nodded in, in agreement that it is getting out there. But are you like, are you surprised what people still don't know? Yes. Oh, all the time. Despite and I think part of it maybe is, you know, the bubble you're in or the the people you're around. So because I'm in the bubble of hormone education, you know, functional, integrative, natural medicine, that's what social media and the ads and everything get driven towards me. So in my mm. head, I'm like, oh, my gosh, thank goodness. I'm seeing my friends and my colleagues and people grow on social media and educate and podcasts and courses and all these things. And then the minute I step outside my bubble, like I, I just met somebody at the airport. I met these two amazingly hilarious flight attendants uh, last week and they were like, oh, what do you do? I said, I, I went, I'm a doctor and focus in women's health. And the one flight attendant was female and in her, she was postmenopausal. And she was like, oh my gosh, I wish I had you. There's so many things I don't know. And I'm, you know, I feel like I'm okay. I'm not too bad. And then her friend who was male was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> tried like, sure, you're, you're fine. Um, and, so, and they'd been, it's so cute. They'd been best friends. They'd been flight attendants for, I think, 33 years together. Mm -hmm. And it's so, but I just realized I took one step outside of my bubble and she was like, oh, I, you know, I have so many questions on hormones. I didn't know. Nobody, my doctor didn't know or doesn't know how to guide me. And 
I was like, oh my gosh, that was last week. Yeah. yeah you should yeah. follow me on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> you must say that a lot, I imagine, uh, yes. with people yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't bother me. I mean, unless somebody is looking for, you know, direct medical advice, I have a lot of people who are like, can I just ask you this one question? Yeah. When I meet them, you know, I, I travel a lot. So like on planes or something, they're like, can I ask you this one question? And usually it's general and usually it's you know, why does this happen? Or, you know, what is this about? Or is this normal? And mm. so just being able to have these quick, wonderful education moments with folks has been great. And as my yeah. husband always teases me, he's like, people really tell you really private, inappropriate things. I said, <laughs> I think it's because hormone education is, we just don't get taught it. Yeah. I mean, men don't get taught it for sure, but like women, we just, we really don't. And we're the ones who are like, why does this happen? What does yeah. this mean? I, I can't tell, and it might be a mixture of both, whether or not it's just, I mean, obviously it is because there's so much more information out there as I've said you know, now multiple times actually in the last 10 minutes. Uh, but also like, I feel like more and more women are struggling with hormones yeah. Or, and I'm not sure whether it's just that they're now more aware that that something is amiss, that it's not necessarily quote unquote normal, or despite it being common. And maybe that's why we're hearing about it more. But it just feels like that more women are struggling, actually, at all stages. Yeah. yeah. And I would th I do agree with you. I think some of it is, again, access to the Internet and social media, whereas before, for example, my mom, my grandmother, my aunts, they may have an issue. Mm. But they didn't, other than their doctor, because they didn't have internet and social media back in the day. And so they were like, well, this is what happens, honey. You know, mm. This is like, I have it and grandma had it and, you know, your aunts had it. So it is what it is. Where So don't complain. Like, just you need to suffer or go through it like the rest of us. Whereas now, because I think all the educational, social media, again, podcasts, the, you know, courses, books, wonderful books that are out now, women are like, oh, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to have massively heavy periods. I didn't yeah. know I was supposed to have, not supposed to have debilitating, you know, depression at PMS. Like, oh my gosh, I didn't know that there was something we could do for my hot flashes that have taken over my life. Whereas before they were told, that's to be expected. Like, mm -hmm. just like you said, um, just it's common. Doesn't mean it's normal. It's common. Suck it up. And now, because there is this, po you can look it up anything up online. Now they'll go, oh, I have that. And oh, I didn't realize I'm not supposed to. I'm like, yeah, you're not supposed to. Yeah. Common. Doesn't mean it's normal. Yeah. And I love that. So I think there's a lot more um, embracing the fact that they want to be empowered and yeah. they want to speak up and they're looking for help and they're like not going to put up with it anymore. Now, on the flip side of that, I do agree, unfortunately, that I think there is a big um, uptick in things like our stress mm. and our exposures and, you know, our, you know, terrible, unfortunately, farming practices and what's in our water. And I think all of this reflects back on our hormones and, and more and more and more. I mean, I've even had women in my DMs, my comments, my comment section, women go, you know, I switched from normal tampons or typical tampons to all organic, 100% cotton tampons. And holy crap, my periods are better. Just that one switch wow. and my cramps went down, my bleeding got better. I don't have crazy clots Yeah, just because of the bleaching process of, of um, tampons. And so I think our exposure over the years, of course, have gone up as well. And a lot of these exposures are activating for our hormone receptors and therefore we feel the symptoms of it yeah and I've got such a like um a list of questions I want to ask you Carrie and as yeah. you've just sort of mentioned the exposure stuff can we just start there even so this yeah. list is not necessarily in some sort of congruent order or anything clearly uh yeah what are the types of things which you in your experience and in your knowledge do impact on how um our hormones function Yes, everything. <laughs> Check the box. <laughs> right? So our hormones, I say this a lot, our hormones are like the canary in the coal mine or they're they're the first to react and they're the last to resolve. Mm -hmm. So our hormones are very they our hormones are I mean and I don't mean I don't mean to talk negatively about this singer because I love her, but our hormones are like Mariah Carey. They're very diva-ish yeah. and they're going to react and they're going to be loud about it, right? And, and 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 we as a body we have to respond. And so our stress affects our hormones. Mm. Our, what we eat affects our hormones or don't eat. You know, are we nourishing or not nourishing? Because you, you got to make a hormone somehow. We need all of these nutrients and 
good fats, et cetera. Like, are we exercising? But are we exercising too much? Are we over-exercising? That'll affect all hormones. Mm. The chemicals we come in contact with, if they're what's called an endocrine-disrupting chemical, so our hormone system is collectively known as the endocrine system, mm. then now you have chemicals that are endocrine disruptors, whether it's fertilizers or herbicides or in, in your sunscreen or in your detergent or the, the you know really pretty candle that you've got burning or just out for decoration that's mm. off-gassing, like plastics, all these things. If they act like an endocrine disruptor, they're going to further promote our endocrine symptoms, our, mm. our hormone symptoms. And, and it goes on and on and on. Like even our, our gut health, people will say to me, I have gas or I have bloating, I have heartburn. There's no way that can be related to my hormones. I'm like, oh yeah, your gut plays a big role in the management of your hormones, all of them, not just estrogen and progesterone, but mm. thyroid and you know glucose and insulin and, and everything. And so all of these things, when they are off kilter or one area is off kilter, then it can cause our hormones, our canary in the coal mine, to be problematic and now we're symptomatic. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like, I might be wrong about this, but I feel like there's just this individual level of resilience that some people might have. So mm -hmm. there seem to be some people who are just robust in the face of all of this and more and have that regular, almost unicorn, sort of 28-day cycle, bleed for five days, not that heavy, don't really get the symptoms, and then, you know, off they go. Whereas other women, it just takes just a, a minor sort of change in their environment, and then suddenly everything's off kilter, and they feel like they just want to curl up in a ball and, and all the rest of it. Is that, yeah. how much does that individual variation play? Big, oh, big time, absolutely, mm. for sure. And even it starts in childhood. You know, we talk about um, ACEs, which is an adverse childhood event, and um, yes. You know, things like trauma or stress, you know, et cetera, et cetera, impacts the way that our brain functions. And believe it or not, how we make or don't make a hormone starts in the brain. Yeah. So if our brain is going, wow, I feel threatened all the time. I feel anxious all the time. I feel um, I'm not getting the nourishment that I need. Then the brain is going to go, ah, you know... Some of these hormones aren't required for life. Estrogen and progesterone, not, not required for life. And, and right now is not a good time to have a menstrual cycle or to ovulate because I'm not feeling, I'm not feeling safe. I'm mm. feeling threatened, whatever that means, however that looks. And so that, that could be that woman who says, gosh, I get a minor stressor and it's everything falls apart, including my hormones. Yeah. And so we get that wiring in our brain and it goes from the top down. And um, and then you add everything else in adulthood on top of it. So if you, if you, if you think of a bucket, picture a bucket, and your bucket's already getting full from childhood stuff, mm -hmm. and now we have the bucket getting fuller from adulthood stuff, whether it's continuation of adulthood, emotions and you know trauma, et cetera, and then stress and chemicals and you know diet, nutrition, et cetera, exercise, et cetera, et cetera, the bucket overfloweth, and mm. that we're more quick to react meaning a worse period, uh, worse symptoms, mm. maybe to compare to somebody else whose bucket's really relatively empty. So when mm. they have a big stress, well, their bucket can handle it because their bucket's relatively empty. And so you fill it halfway and the body's like, Psst, it's only 50% full. That's no big deal. Yeah. Whereas some, you know, somebody else who's more, uh, uh, maybe a more reactive canary in the coal mine, you add one drop Mm -hmm. And the whole thing just, the, you know, the Jenga tower falls apart, the bucket overflows. Yeah, so interesting. I remember looking at a study on cognitive behavior therapy and um, amenorrheic women, mm -hmm. and they they showed that they were calorie sufficient and they appeared to have what they needed in uh, with nutrients but still weren't cycling then they had the CBT therapy for six months and yeah. there was success with a lot of the women because of the way they changed how they thought is that as you see it sort of just tying that relationship to yeah well not the relationship but that very thing that the brain is the be all and end all yeah I mean we have a section of our brain and the brain is um, as we know, very complicated, but we have a section of our brain called the amygdala and it's a, mm. it's a fear-based emotional center. So, and it talks directly to the portion of our brain that deals with hormones, mm. uh, hormone release, and especially things like cortisol or adrenaline, you know, it, it talks right to that center. And so the purpose of the amygdala is protective. Um, and I give this example a lot because it relates to a lot of folks, especially now on social media, because all the zoos have social media and, and it's really fun to see all these animals like tigers and, and elephants. And, you know, and people comment like, well, if it's not 
If it's not friendly, why does it look friendly? And it's our amygdala is there to keep us safe. So if you saw mm. a tiger in the wild mm. and you didn't have the amygdala, for example, you're what are we gonna do? Like, oh my God, it's a cat. I love cats. Cats <laughs> love me. Like, come here, kitty. Come here, right? Of course, we're gonna think, oh my gosh. But the amygdala is what's like, holy crap, it's a tiger. Right? You know, like <laughs> run and do do something, run, move, you know, whatever. <laughs> don't, don't pet it, run. And so, but, but. That amygdala can get conditioned or mm. trained into a very quick pathway, whereas especially if it started out young in childhood, to become um, fearful, yeah. fear-based, threatened, is you know very quickly. So instead mm. of instead of taking you know t- time, let's use time. Like instead yeah. of taking like an hour or two or repetitions, like ah, oh, that's not very fearful. But by the fourth time, you're like, you know what? That's fearful. I should avoid that. Yeah. Eventually, the amygdala is gonna go. Oh no, we need. To, it'll react quick. Snap of the fingers. Yeah. And it, we feel like it's almost beyond our control. Like mm. floating above your body, you know something might not be stressful, fearful triggering for you like your logical brain is like what are you doing this isn't this isn't a fearful thing but the amygdala has already set the pathway and it's already triggered itself and off you go into hormone disasterness yeah and so that's just one example of um how that how our emotions so now you go through cognitive therapy uh, of some sort right you go through some sort of a mental emotional getting to the root cause and if you can calm that section down, work through that section, then you can ease up on the feeling threatened. Mm. Let's use that as an example or mm. fear. And that can then subsequently help your hormones. Because yeah. before you can tell the amygdala, I'm not actually fearful. What are you doing? It's already run to the part of the brain that's already released the adrenaline and the cortisol and affected your hormones. Okay. So if we can work to back that up. And I know people listening are going to go, ah, oh, crap, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I know that I float above my body and go, stop stressing out. And I, yet I'm completely like my, nobody's listening. My body yeah. is completely in a panic attack or in, you know, my anxiety is all the time or whatever it is. Mm. Um, Carrie, what would be your, uh, so obviously so people, when they hear this, they're like, yeah, well, I'm, I don't have thousands of dollars in six months to work on this. So so uh, what supplements should I take? Now, yeah. okay, let, let's, let's both acknowledge, of course, that you can Band-Aid with a supplement, but if, unless you do that sort of deep work, you're probably, you know, it may work for a time, yeah. but then probably will lose its effectiveness. However, what in your experience, what types of supplements could people look at if they yeah. do recognize some of themselves in that? So there's some really great generally considered safe supplements. So just a basic one is magnesium, which mm. I know sounds crazy some you know it's a mineral it's a very important mineral in our body but it's also very calming it can be relaxing it can be anti-spasmodic spasmodic meaning if you get tight muscles you know if you tend to tense a lot and you've got your shoulders up at your ears like you just pulled yours down in on the video um taking magnesium for sleep can be helpful especially if you feel that tight spasmy body sensation before you go to bed. Mm. Now, tea, If again, you will see teas out there like calming tea or stress less tea or um, there's a, and they have ingredients like holy basil. Holy basil mm. is also known as Tulsi. You can get holy basil tea and they can be really nice to sip on through the day. You can take holy basil as a supplement. Um, again, it's calming. It's generally rela- not relaxing like you can't operate machinery, mm. um, but relaxing is in like pull you down the next level. So if you've got yourself up at a nine, it can help pull you down to maybe a six or a five so that you can function, do your job, handle your kids, et cetera. Um, the, my other favorite is called L-theanine, which mm. is uh, sorry, the TH, L-theanine, which is a amino acid. Again, that's calming, relaxing, soothing, but not necessarily drowsy inducing. So in my old clinic, we used to call it the ibuprofen of stress, meaning mm. you take it and it kicks in in about 30 minutes. Oh, so if you've sense. had a bad day, a bad phone call, a bad meeting, bad kids, and you're, you've pushed, like you're up at a nine or a 10, that the L-theanine can help again, just sort of in about 30-ish minutes, help sort of bring you down to a functioning level. It's not going to cure, cure what ills you. But it can help when you're in that immediate moment of um, 
stress, of of stress response. Then there are things called adaptogens. Adaptogens basically do what they say they're going to do, help you adapt to stress. Mm. So you will see ones out there like ashwagandha, rhodiola, um, that uh, ginseng that are that are really popular. They do have their nuances. You do, they're they're not necessarily um, side effect free. So, for mm-hmm. example, like I, ashwagandha is okay for somebody who has low thyroid or hypothyroid, mm-hmm. but it's maybe not great for somebody who has hyperthyroid. And there are some other side effects that might be with ashwagandha. Mm-hmm. Rhodiola can be stimulating for people. Um, rhodiola can be drying, um, dry things out. So if you're already dry eyes, dry mouth, you know, dry skin, um, if you're maybe in menopause, you know, dry vagina, rhodiola may not be a great option for you, or maybe just be aware of your dose. Don't take the full dose. Don't take, you know, a high dose. Don't mm. just take a, like, if you're, keep, keep the dose kind of low, mm. um, or in a blend and just as an FYI. And so, the Tulsi, the holy basil, uh, the L-theanine, you know, gen- magnesium, yeah. generally, generally, you know, considered safe. Definitely ask your practitioner. Yeah. Adaptogens, just, you know, just be mindful. Yeah. No, that's great, Carrie. And, and if someone tries these things or um, should they expect them to have an immediate effect? So if they, if someone tries it and they're not like really seeing any change, does that therefore mean that they're probably not going to be effective for that person? So the holy basil and the L-theanine are generally um, immediate, Mm. uh, usually within the same day or in a couple of days if you're taking it consistently. The L-theanine I like because it doesn't, I don't find, my patient base didn't find you had to take it regularly and then build it up in your system. It seemed to, you take it and it can be really helpful. Um, Now this is also assuming you are working on whatever it is that's sending you into that hormonal situation. So mm-hmm. if you are in a very severe 10 out of 10 situation, tol- tol- holy basil tea, Tulsi tea is probably not going to pull you out of it, right? And yeah. a, a dose of L-theanine is probably not going to be life-saving. Um, it may be helpful, mm-hmm. but you may not notice a difference depending like where you are in the, the stress that you're under. Yeah. Adaptogens, I do find, take a little more time to kick in. I do find, you know, they may take a week or two. Some people notice it right away. Some people go, I didn't notice anything. And then by, you know, the second week, they're like, oh, actually, I'm a little more even. I'm a little more calm. This is great. Some of the adaptogens take longer. Ginseng takes longer. That may be mm. a month or more before you start to notice, like, oh, I am. This is better. This is good. Or you'll stop it or forget to take it and realize, oh, yeah, it was helpful. Yeah. I forgot to take it last weekend and here it is Monday and I'm more stressed out. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. interesting. And with those herbs, what I, um, I don't know if this is your experience, but, um, I'm a geek. And so you talk about Siri, you know, you, you know, you ask Siri stuff and I like, I PubMed almost everything like oh, yeah. to, the, to the point where it's like that, you know, oh, you just PubMed that and like you can use it in that way. Um, and a lot of the herbs and stuff don't necessarily have a lot, have a lot of that sort of super strong, robust clinical trial evidence yeah. but I don't stop that I so I always just let people know that yet also they also don't have like millions of dollars of pharmaceutical money behind them probably to do the trials is that yeah. sort of how you feel about that research Gary? yeah I would agree and there the, the good thing is the research is catching on you're mm. definitely going to find more and more um in um in herbal research which is wonderful but you're right they don't have you know, a $200 million budget to figure out this thing about ashwagandha because yeah. pharmaceuticals are putting all the research money behind it because they, one, they want it to work. So two, they can patent it and then turn around and sell it. Whereas like nobody cares about rhodiola. We do, but, yeah. <laughs> but they don't, like, nobody cares about magnesium. Although there is good, there's some really wonderful research out there on magnesium yeah. or minerals in general or B vitamins. You will find it, but not, they don't, it doesn't have the, um, the financial backing of these big pharmaceutical companies. Yeah. Yeah. I find it super surprising with magnesium that there's very little sleep research on it, yet it's mm-hmm. the thing that I always sort of suggest to people. I just, as a, you know, like I, I see so much research for it in terms of um, all of its other impact, but it just mm-hmm. doesn't seem to have this like massive body of literature behind that. 
uh, you know, it's usefulness know. there, but it's so helpful. I would agree. I take it at night before bed. Yeah, same. <laughs> <laughs> um, Carrie, can we um, talk about cortisol? So mm. it's, you know, I have a number of clients who come to see me and, and they've had blood markers sort of taken and they're like, my cortisol is through the roof or I can't see any, you know, there's, it's, a, my doctor's worried it's a little bit low. Um, can we first talk about how best to measure cortisol and then I'll probably have just a bunch of questions after that. Yeah. The thing about cortisol, so the blood test for cortisol um, is an okay screening mechanism. You get your blood tested once. It's usually in the morning. Hopefully it's in the morning. Um, but the thing with cortisol is cortisol, the active form of cortisol is what's called a free cortisol. So when cortisol binds to its receptors and turns it, activates it, it has to be free to do so. Mm. Majority of cortisol is on a bus being driven through, like an Uber, being driven through your body to the different places. So when you get your blood drawn, your blood draw is a combination of the cortisol that's free and available mm. and the cortisol that's on a bus. So let's say you get your blood drawn and your cortisol level is a 10. Well, what you don't know is if it's one free and nine on a bus or nine free, and, and one on a bus. Mm. So nine free is a whole different ball game than one free, right? And so, and so this is why it's like an okay screening mechanism, but you're not getting the full picture. Mm. So then we moved into salivary testing. So you would suck on a cotton swab or spit in a tube and you do it throughout the day because cortisol follows a rhythm. It should mm -hmm. be high in the morning. Let me clarify that. It should be high in the morning as in there's a reference range where it goes up like a mountain and then mm. comes down. So people freak out. I don't want high cortisol. I'm like, no, no. The reference range in the morning does go up and then it comes down. So we want to follow that pattern. Do you have a typical pattern? So the saliva testing came out because they were like, oh, we can measure free cortisol. We can measure what's free and available. You'll do it in the morning. You'll do it around lunch. You'll do it around dinner. You'll do it before bed. And we'll give you your pattern and tell you what's free. Mm. Other companies also jumped on urinary testing. So um, either liquid, you know, pee in a cup or pee on a piece of paper and let it dry, which is called dried urine testing. Same thing you do in the morning, a couple hours later, around dinner and before bed, and you can get that free cortisol out of it. In urine, you can get a few more extra markers. You can get the inactive form, which is called cortisone. Mm -hmm. So or maybe you don't have a lot of cortisol because you're a deactivator. You're deactivating into cortisone. Um, it also gives us something called cortisol metabolites. How are you metabolizing your cortisol? So you get a lot of extra free information out of urine. But mm. that's sort of the progression of how cortisol testing came about. Um, so if somebody has a blood test and they say, oh, I got my blood test drawn and it's so high, I'm freaking out. I'm like, well, I don't, I don't actually know. Even if it's 100, I mm. don't actually know the breakdown of your numbers. Yes, yeah. 100 is not great. But what does that actually mean? Are you 99 bound up on a bus? Yeah. And one is free? Yeah. You know, and the other thing is people will go, I got my cortisol tested in blood. It's super high, but I'm so tired. Yeah. I'm so tired, but yet I was told I should, you know, have all this cortisol. Same reason. If it's 100, 99 of them are bound up on a bus or an Uber, mm. not doing anything, and you only have one free and active to do the thing like of course you're tired you only yeah. have one dude yeah or girl floating around you know binding to receptors now i'm being exaggerative just to yeah. give an example so everyone understands but that's why it's important to dig deeper in your cortisol testing and see what you're doing the other thing about testing is again you want to know it throughout the day because you may find in the morning you're low when you should be higher you need to go up like a mountain yeah and then come down and if you have insomnia you might find your cortisol inappropriately goes up before bed yeah and now you're wide awake and wired yeah yeah so so carrie what is the best path for testing then so you mentioned saliva you mentioned urinary um i know that you were the medical director at dutch prior to moving to rupa as the head of um uh, medical education but so is it in, in your eyes is urine testing the best or is it better to do a combination? I do a combination. I find that, um, so, so saliva is considered, uh, and there's a lot of research around saliva. Um, the research around urine testing is just getting off the ground. It's out there. It's just getting off the ground. Um, so when you do saliva, what I like about that 
is I can get what's called the cortisol awakening response. Yeah. So I can actually see what your baseline waking cortisol is. In a, in, you'll in a you uh, suck on a cotton swab. So pop mm-hmm. it. You wake up. Pop in your pop the cotton swab in your mouth. Baseline cortisol. Then your cortisol in about thirty minutes should go up like a mountain. Mm-hmm. I will test you again. Are you going up like a normal mountain? Do you overshoot the mountain or do you flatline? Mm. Then I'll test you 30 minutes after that because you go up the mountain and then you come back down the mountain uh, just to, for the rest of your day. That's what's known as a cortisol awakening response. So mm. I do that in saliva and I combine it with urine because I want those extra markers. I want to know, do you deactivate to cortisone? Mm-hmm. The reason I want to know that is if because somebody might say to me, I am low in cortisol. I'm tired. Therefore, I need to take all the herbs and the nutrients and the things to stimulate cortisol production. Mm. I might do a urine test and go, well, actually, no, you make a lot of cortisol. You just deactivate it all. So increasing production is not going to help you. What Mm. I need to help you with is is figuring out why you're deactivating. So it helps me just get more of the puzzle. Plus, it'll give me what's called cortisol metabolites, which helps me answer the question. Do you, how much do you make originally? Mm. And then how are you clearing it or metabolizing it through your liver? So it's a lot of information. It's yeah. much more uh, comprehensive than just here, get this blood draw. Yeah. You know, here's your one answer. Yeah. And so it can be very overwhelming for people and practitioners for sure. Mm. Um, but when it comes to cortisol, it, much like thyroid, like I want the whole picture. I yeah. want to see what everything I'm looking at. Yeah. And as you describe sort of what you're looking at and in the metabolites and how that might, you know, how they're uh, sort of excreted and stuff, it's obvious it's not just from the adrenals with which you might be looking at that. It's, you know, there might be a whole host of things going on because, you know, back, you know, 10 years ago, adrenal fatigue was something which was a term used by practitioners and sort of population alike to describe that sort of low cortisol response that, that you were talking about. But of course, as you illustrate, um, it's not necessarily, it might not even be adrenal related right. as much. Is that, yeah. is that right? Yeah. And we found out um, the term adrenal fatigue. I mean, it makes sense. Mm. It's sexy, right? It sells books. Um, people can relate. Oh yes, I am fatigued and cortisol is made out of the adrenals. This makes sense. Uh, but what now, and this title is not sexy at all, but now what you will read more about is um, the adrenal whole Top to bottom is called the HPA axis, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. Mm. So now you will see information about the HPA insufficiency or HPA dysfunction because the signal to create cortisol in the first place happens in the brain, happens in the hypothalamus and pituitary. Mm. And then that comes down to the adrenal glands. But in the adrenal glands themselves, it's in the mitochondria. Mm. That's That's the first and last step for cortisol production. So now we're looking not only at the glands, meaning um, even think about blood flow, like the blood flow in your whole abdominal area. Like how do you think the communication from your brain gets down to the adrenals? It's mm. not you know, it's not airwaves, they don't send a text. It's, it's through the bloodstream, right? So people who have a lot of constrictions, restrictions, scars, history of surgeries, mm. endometriosis, like they may have some smokers, um, type two diabetics who aren't well controlled, like they may have a lot of blood um, flow issues. So they're not going to get the message down to the adrenal. So even just that, helping that can be helpful. But then now once we're actually in the adrenal gland, it's the mitochondria, our little cellular powerhouses that actually are making, they're the first and last step for cortisol. And they are, um, they're damaged very easily. And so it's not so so adrenal fatigue as a term makes perfect sense the symptoms are very real i'm never debating anybody on how they feel it's mm. just from a scientific point of view the science community was like adrenal fatigue no that's not true yeah it's, it's the whole access hpa access insufficiency or deficiency or dysfunction that's just not as easy to say yeah no for sure and the way that you describe it just says to me that there's now just a whole lot of other um, I mean, everything's complex, but there's at least a whole other sort of like there are lots of layers with which you can go in to figure out if this is the thing that's causing the symptoms yeah. that's that yeah. people are experiencing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's it's um, much like a spider web. You know, if you were to you know pull one end of the spider web, the whole spider web vibrates. Or if you throw um, a pebble in a pond, you know, mm. like the ripples are or go across the whole pond. 
It's the same in the body. We want to focus on the one thing like, oh, I'm going to make more cortisol, just yeah. cortisol. It's like, ah, the body doesn't work that way. Yeah. It's not a just, right? Like yeah, you can't yeah. only. Yeah. <laughs> the body is an entire system. And then, of course, on the flip side, cortisol obviously required for life, yet um, it is one of the hormones that you see a lot on social media is is almost being sort of villainized, you know, like oh, too yeah. much cortisol. I've got elevated cortisol. So a couple of questions around that. Um, first, do women have a higher cortisol response in the morning or a higher cortisol level in general, Carrie, are there, are there gender differences or sex differences no. that you see? No. So the, the, the research, um, first of all, I will say the research is not um, well funded there to know. Yeah. There is some research to show that at ovulation, mm -hmm. so just prior to ovulation, everything goes up. Yeah. Our estrogen goes up as women, our LH goes up, our testosterone goes up, our TSH for the thyroid goes up. So there is some research to show that our cortisol awakening response gets caught up in the mix and also goes up. Because okay. if everybody's up, might as well. But then there's other research to say, no, that's not true. That doesn't happen. Eh. Mm. But as far as do uh, like females historically have higher morning cortisol than males, especially cycling females, Yeah, they're not testing that. And then when they test that, we have to be cognizant of our menstrual cycle. So yeah. that's the other. Like We either have to be at the same point of our cycle every time as a research group to know, like everybody's on day two. What's our, like what's you know what's the average yeah. cortisol compared to our male counterparts? And so I have not seen the research to support absolute females make more cortisol. Maybe at ovulation. Okay, well that's it's super interesting because I see it all the time. And you know, as a like I'm an endurance runner, I see a lot of athletes. Mm -hmm. So I'm in that space in addition to just you know helping women in general um, and people in general. Um, and you often see, you know, women have higher cortisol. That research shows women have higher cortisol in the morning. Therefore, they should avoid fasted training because they're accelerating muscle breakdown, muscle damage, um, digging themselves into some sort of metabolic hole. Um, and obviously there are uh, levels of athletes and levels of, you know, yeah. uh, training intensities and whatnot. But, um, yeah, I was interested to get your input on that. And having worked for a lab that we, they did, I mean, I saw, I mean, I was there for nine, almost 10 years. So thousands and thousands and thousands of lab tests, um, cortisol awakening response. And I, we looked at trends a lot, yeah. a lot. And I don't. In the team, when I was there, we had a team of 13 doctors that worked with me and we didn't, I would, would not say collectively as a trend, we would go, oh, is everyone noticing that the female cortisol is higher than, mm. than the male, their male counterparts? We definitely didn't notice that. Yeah. Um, so I understand. Yeah. So no. <laughs> yeah. 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 No. That's, no. Yeah. No. Again, it's it's very it is very menstrual cycle related though. Like, can your um, body's reaction to cortisol, depending where you are in your cycle, be changed? Mm -hmm. Yes, that mm -hmm. is true. Again, if you're at ovulation versus which is you know before the luteal phase. And then in the luteal phase is like our nesting phase, right? It's the like, just in case we're going to get pregnant or just in case we're waiting for pregnancy, the body's built up the uterus, the inside of the uterus, and it, it, it's trying to protect the uterus and send nutrients. It's like, just in case you're pregnant, just in case implantation is going to happen, we got you. So is our response to things like cortisol or glucose or insulin? Absolutely. But the actual production, um, we did not, I would say... We did not see that. Yeah. Like, oh wow. But these thousands of tests. Yeah. Women always have high cortisol or higher. <laughs> yeah. No, that's so interesting. And I guess it just comes back to that individual response, right? And how yeah. uh, how one person is going to respond to a stress load, and if that training, it, you know, adds a layer of a st of stress that their brain can't cope with, then I suppose that's right. where there may be some challenges for some people. And with athletes, as we know, um, and depending, especially the higher level athletes, um, you, tr you can often train yourself into these things, right? Yeah. And so like if we think of the menstrual cycle, for example, as our progesterone goes up, that changes the way we handle our salt water balance, mm. which can affect our perception in space, which can make us clumsier. So 
I'm not allowed to have nice glassware because guaranteed I will break it when I get into that PMS week because I'm just massively clumsier. So when I'm working with athletes, let's say a gymnast or um, a track runner, and they'll go, oh my gosh, I trip, I fall, I, you know, uh, you can't, I can't get it together the week before my period. I'm like, that's when you need to focus on the tiny details, like, like runners, like pushing off the block, reacting to the, the start gun. Gymnasts, um, that's when you're focusing, just mount, dismount, is my, like, the, like the bar folks, like mount, dismount, mount, dismount. Because if you can be your most graceful that week, mm. Then imagine where you if if your competition falls on a different week, then you're like leagues above everybody else because you've yeah. trained to it. But you have to know that you have to know that you can use things like your menstrual cycle as your superpower to train to it. Don't instead of instead of like I'm not an, I'm have no interest in being a competitive athlete. I just know I'm clumsy, right? Like I don't yeah. you know, if I break I break a glass, I'm like oh, whatever. Just buy a new. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. But to an athlete, I'm mm. like, yes, this is this is very real. And so you're right; it's very individualized and personalized. And then imagine an athlete who's on the birth control pill, you know. Mm. And so now an athlete's like, oh, I was told not to train fasted because of cortisol and an effect on hormones. It's like, well, you're on the birth control pill; it doesn't matter. Yeah. Like the birth actually, control pill takes over. Yeah. So you actually don't fit into that the birth control has its whole other host of issues but yeah so yes i think um i understand the broad generalization i don't see cortisol higher across the board in women and mm. it definitely where are you in your cycle or are you on the pill because that will impact it as well yeah no that's that's great carrie um and another question, actually, this is a complete um, pivot, um, progesterone. Yeah. Um, this is another one which I, you know, I see it and I've, I've heard people be very um, emphatic about just how catabolic progesterone is and we're just breaking down our proteins in our luteal phase because as it, as it goes up, you know, we're just, we're just, um, you know, struggle to hold on to muscle mass. Now, in, in my, um, in my opinion, I sort of like, I advocate for a higher protein approach anyway mm-hmm. so i i suspect that an additional requirement for protein with what i suggest people take might not really be required if that's the case with progesterone because they're already having quite a bit um what is your understanding in that space as you know a hormone expert yeah, uh, pro- yeah progesterone is catabolic um is it the worst hormone in the world no of course not so i i Mom, there's a, I think sometimes there's a mismatch between maybe what somebody puts on social media or educates about, and then um, women are like, oh my gosh, progesterone's catabolic. I'm going to lose all the muscle that I have just gained, mm. you know, the prior two weeks. I'm screwed. It's like, no, it's, 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 not, it's not one and done. It's not like automatically progesterone just shoots you in the foot and you've lost everything. Mm. But it is, it is catabolic it is is it as catabolic as cortisol high cortisol no cortisol is definitely catabolic um but it can be catabolic now in a separate conversation do i feel like women are under proteined yes i do feel we have a higher protein need than we think i -hmm. feel like we've been taught through the years that we don't need a lot of protein or we shouldn't eat a lot of protein and i totally disagree with that i think Mm -hmm. we are very under proteined I also, in a separate conversation, the, all of these can be mutually exclusive. Um, and Dr. Gabrielle Lyon teaches this: oh, yes. we are under muscled. So, yes. so regardless of your progesterone, do I think you're under muscled and under proteined? I do. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> but do I think that when you hit into that luteal phase, or God forbid, your practitioner puts you on progesterone as a supplement or a, a, a hormone replacement therapy? Have you just lost all of your muscle? Are you going to waste away? You are not. Yeah. <laughs> you are not going to waste away just because you have progesterone or go on progesterone. But I do think we need more protein as a woman. And I do think we are under muscled per Dr. Lyon. Yeah. And I completely agree with that, um, um, obviously. It's so, <laughs> it, it's so interesting, you know, to try to convince a woman to to eat more protein or do the things that's going to help stimulate muscle protein synthesis. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's such a hard, it seems to be such a hard sell for women. Um, it yeah. is, it's getting easier potentially, but it's still, it's almost like you get surprised by what people don't know. Like I get yeah. surprised by just how um, difficult it is to sort of convince someone that, 
actually, no, you can run, swim and bike. Absolutely. But you really need to be doing that resistance-based training as well. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And especially as we get older, right? Mm. Especially as us women hit into, I'll be 45 this year. And so especially mm. as we get into perimenopause and then menopause, our ability to just ma- build and hold on to our muscle goes down yeah. regardless of progesterone. Yeah. Just age is a process. Yeah. Um, we are more catabolic. We yeah. Are, and, and women will say that. They'll say, I feel squishier. Yeah. I'm, is, you know, as I hit a certain age, I, you know, Carrie, I feel I've, I've suddenly become squishy. Mm. as opposed to lean like I didn't change anything I'm like ah but you yes you did (laughs) (laughs) you entered into perimenopause and menopause (gasps) your whole body changed yes yes build that muscle um Carrie one hormone that doesn't get a lot of airtime with women um testosterone so yeah like I've a lot of the conversations I have around testosterone for women are in that polycystic ovary sort of syndrome space and, and the potential to have too much. Uh, is there a case that in, so, so what is the importance of testosterone for a woman and, and what implication does too little have? It drives me nuts that there is not wonderful research on low testosterone in women. Mm. Um, we have so much research on testosterone in men and yet you're right. There's a lot on PCOS, but a, a significant percentage of the population has low testosterone and they feel it. So testosterone in women has a big impact on our libido, mm. on our brain health, on our bones. Like it helps prevent things like osteoporosis. Our mood has a big impact on uh, you know, like depression, um, energy levels. Testosterone definitely plays like our lean muscle mass, right? Mm. Like testosterone is anabolic, so it's building, but in it uh, in the right amounts, it build, helps everywhere. It builds bone, builds muscle, builds brain, but you know, builds our mood. And so, unfortunately, and I was just doing this research this weekend. I thought, you know, by now, by now in the United States, there has to be an FDA approved testosterone prescription. Mm. Right now, everything's off label and it's mm. compounded. Um, or using a prescription for men off-label for women. And I thought, by now there's something FDA approved. Nothing. Mm. There is nothing testosterone related. So anytime um, women have low testosterone and are given testosterone, it's what's considered off-label. It doesn't necessarily make it a bad thing. It's just, I'm shocked in 2022, no pharmaceutical company has gone, you know, testosterone can play a big role and be really mm-hmm. helpful for, for women. We focus a lot on estrogen and progesterone. Maybe we should show them some testosterone love too. Yeah. And they don't. And what is the cause of low testosterone? Oh, so many things. So testosterone is made in three locations. Mm-hmm. So in women, it's made, we have a percentage that are made in our ovaries mm-hmm. when, we, when we cycle. And then we have a percentage that are made in our adrenal glands. Mm. And then we have a percentage that's made what we call in our peripheral tissue. So basically everywhere else, every other tissue in the body can make some testosterone. So if you have HPA axis dysfunction, so if your adrenal glands are not getting the signals or they're not doing their job, you can lose the percentage of testosterone from there. You can, if your ovaries are not functioning well, maybe you um, have amenorrhea, meaning like you just don't cycle. You've gone several months without a period. Um, You are uh, perimenopause or menopause. So again, like you're losing your uh, ovarian function, you're going to lose some of that percentage of, of your testosterone potentially. So it can, so age can play a factor. Now, the testosterone out of our ovaries are also affected by what's happening in our brain. Mm-hmm. So the brain signals, if they're not getting to the ovary, so if they're being suppressed or depressed in some way, the very first step of hormone production out of the ovaries is to create your hormone like like testosterone to create your androgens. And I think this really um when it comes to basic physiology, I nerd out on this. I didn't, you know, I didn't know this for the longest time and, until I hit medical school, but like if you want to make a progesterone, you have to first make a testosterone or mm. or its counterpart called androstenedione. Huh. So in our in our ovaries, we have follicles. The follicle contains the egg, and so we have a lot of follicles, a lot of eggs. Mm. And so the outer layer of the follicle as it's developing forms a cell and that cell's main job is to make androgens mm. like testosterone and then you and then they float inward to the cell next door called a granulosa cell and they magically convert into your estrogens mm. through a process called aromatization when you ovulate those two cells theca granulosa 
they magically transform into lutein cells. It's this whole transformation the whole way. And then that starts to pr pump out um, progesterone. So the very first step, if you're low in progesterone, if you're low in estrogen, like the very first step out of your ovaries is the first, first, first make androgens, make hmm. testosterone, make androcetidione. And so everyone's always like, oh my gosh, what do I take to raise my progesterone? Like, well, why is it low? And let's yeah. back up in the process. Are yeah. you able to make estrogens? Are you able to make testosterone? Because these are the precursors to get there in the first place. Yeah. What's going on with your brain? So it's, um, it's so unfortunate to me that testosterone, low testosterone, um, is not getting the press that it needs. Yeah. Um, or women will say, my libido is low, my mood is low, uh, maybe they've been diagnosed with osteoporosis, they're losing muscle mass, they're, they're getting older. And instead of, looks like you need some testosterone support maybe, it's here, take this antidepressant, right? Yeah. It's like, oh, or that's a natural part of aging, good luck. Yeah. Um, and that's really unfortunate. Is that just really that there needs to be more professional development and education in um, physicians who might treat these women just so they're aware of the benefits? Because I think that's, you know, I see it a lot in the nutrition sort of side is that doctors just don't have the time to learn about nutrition. So how are they speaking? Yeah, yeah. So it's the same thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm. I, have a, I have a really good friend who is, she's a double board certified internist and gastroenterologist. She's an MD. And so she's extremely intelligent, knows her stuff. Um, she, she does a lot of functional integrative medicine now. But when she first got into the field, she said to me, um, can you just explain, can you re-explain the menstrual cycle to me again? Because I focus in internal medicine, you know, internist or, or gastroenterology. Actually, what she said to me was, I'm not in that hole, Carrie. I'm in the other hole. Can you explain the menstrual cycle? And I was like, yes, yes. Double board certified MD, intelligent woman. Yeah. But it wasn't like her whole focus was yeah. GI and internal. Why would she focus on hormones? She didn't need to. Yeah, totally. It made sense. And, and so I see this over and over, having been in the field well, a really long time, let's just say. And all my, my MD or DO friends are like, first of all, I don't have the time. And second of all, it's, we get a brief overview. And unless you really go into OBGYN or you really focus into hormones, we just don't know it. We have so mm -hmm. many other things. You know, my ER doctor friends are like, do you think I know anything about hormones other than like, are you pregnant? And like, that's it. I pass them on. I'm like, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. But, but, but I use that information then to empower people men or women, that it's okay to add a hormone expert to your team. If you yeah. love your primary care, that's great. Keep them. If you love your gynecologist, but your gynecologist doesn't really know hormones, mm. hormones, but they're great. They like delivered your babies and like they, they understand like pap smear. Totally cool. Keep them. Just add in somebody else who actually doubles down on hormones and that can be really helpful. Yeah, no, totally. Um, Carrie, one last question on the measurement of hormones. We talked about cortisol and the best way to measure cortisol. I often get asked about progesterone and estrogen and the best way yeah. to, to measure them. Yes. And obviously you can measure them through the blood. Uh, and, and I wonder if you can, if it's possible to be, to do it briefly, because I'm aware of your time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Urine, blood, timing, particularly around perimenopause. So um, in the blood is a great option. You'll get your progesterone. You'll get your, the active estrogen they test is estradiol or E2. Mm. Great. The problem with blood is you don't get anything beyond that. So mm. then came along saliva testing, saliva testing, um, again, for convenience, you're often doing it with cortisol. Yeah. Um, it looks at free, free progesterone, free estradiol. Yeah. Then along came urine testing. Uh, 24 hour or uh, liquid or dried. The great thing about urine is we got extra information. Not mm. only do you get the information on the hormones themselves, where are they going? It's called metabolites, they're pathways. So a lot of practitioners like urinary testing because they'll go, ah, I made an estrogen, where is it going? Some of the pathways are not healthy. Let's just say that, right? Yeah. A lot of risk. And so that's where we like, um, came up with these three options for hormone testing. Now, when do you test? You generally want to test if you are still ovulating five to seven days after ovulation. Okay. So roughly most labs will tell you day 19, 20, or 21 of a 28-day cycle. If you are longer, then push it out. And if you are shorter, shorten it up. So if you're like, oh, Carrie, I'm not 28 days, I'm 25 days. It's like, all right, well then collect on day 15. Yeah. You know, so we just, you just adjust. Now, perimenopause is a different trick. 
because it can be very erratic. You may get your period, you may not get your period. You may get your period every two weeks and then it goes away for six months. So then you do the best that you can. So some practitioners opt not to test estrogen or progesterone. Mm. They just know it's very erratic, but they will test cortisol and thyroid and testosterone and um, glucose and insulin, so other hormones. Mm. And others will go, we're just going to shoot in the dark and we're going to hope for the best and see where you're at, knowing you're pretty erratic. And that's okay too, as long as the practitioner is aware of what they're doing when they test the hormones. And then finally, some perimenopausal women are quite regular. They still get 28-day cycles. And I'm like, great, collect 19, 20, 21, mm. somewhere in there. Mm. And so is that's it, what we do. Is it of value to know that you're in perimenopause? Um, it, I think it's, a, well, first of all, there's no actual test to say perimenopause. Um, usually we take age and symptoms into account. Yeah. Um, so in the test for menopause is you haven't had a period for 12 months. Once you hit the 13th month of no period and you're at that age, you're considered menopausal. But there is a hormone marker called FSH, follicle stimulating hormone. When you're menopausal, it will go up very high. It'll, you know, really go up there. And so you'll go, oh, yep, you are definitely menopausal. Yeah. But FSH can be variable in perimenopause or it may be completely normal in perimenopause because you're not there yet. Yeah. So there's no actual blood test or saliva test or urine test for, for perimenopause. But it is helpful to know what's coming. It is helpful, you know, and a lot, of, a lot happens in this transition. Women don't realize as they go through perimenopause, they become more, they can become more insulin resistant. Yeah. They have a higher increase of diabetes. Their heart disease risk goes up. Mm. Their thyroid has an increased chance of slowing down. Like all of these things can happen in this big, big, big transition. So yes, do some testing yeah. and make sure you, and keep, a ta keep tabs on it. Yeah. Don't miss it. Don't slam into menopause like, oh, crap, I didn't know. <laughs> slam into menopause. Yeah. No, totally. And I, because um, I often get asked that from women, like, what test do I need to do in order to show that I'm in perimenopause? And like you say, it's... Age and symptoms. Yeah, age and symptoms, totally. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Carrie, finally, obviously you're such a wealth of information. I've learned so much from you. Um, and then also they've got the, um, from your former, where you were um, the medical director at Dutch, they've got this amazing library of webinars that practitioners can go to who are your go-tos in terms of um information on on social on instagram or websites oh resources where um, do the best learn from i know <laughs> i'm like who are my favorites so my favorites recently um for female brain researcher i like dr lisa Mascani. Yes. She wrote the XX Brain. She's one of my favorites. I love when she posts. I have been following her research for years prior to her. I don't even think she was on social media when I found her first study. So she's one of my favorites. Uh, Dr. Huberman is one of my favorites. Um, his podcast, God Bless Some, is a little long for me sometimes. <laughs> I don't have that kind of attention span, but his posts are wonderful. So he mm. has been a great one to learn from. Um, let's see. I almost need to pick up. I'm like looking at my books. Like who do I... Oh, Dr. Gersh, Dr. Felice Gersh. Oh. She is a um, OBGYN who does predominantly uh, GYN in Los Angeles. She has written some books on PCOS, and I just love, love listening to her. When she lectures, I just get so excited because she's just wonderful. Um, so she's another favorite of mine uh, to listen to. This is going to be terrible. I'm like, oh, my goodness. Oh, um, Dr. James D. Nicolatino. Ah, yes. He's, he's Dr. Denick. I think he's Denick on um, social media. He has some wonderful books, The Mineral Fix, which is such a great mineral. It's a, we are, as humans, are often very depleted, as you know, in minerals. And so it's nice to have, I have his book on my shelf to awesome. uh, reference mineral stuff. So, and he's a, he puts out, he pumps out tons of information on social media. That's all free. So yeah, he's another great one as well. That is awesome, Carrie. Thank you. Um, I'm going to go um, hunt out Felice. Gersh, who I, I Dr. I, Gersh, yeah, Dr. Yes. Gersh, who I have not heard, and I love James Dinick as well. Like, and like you, he's just so good at translating that science into information that we understand, which is, yeah. you know, then makes it sort of usable and practical to to be able to put into practice. Yes, yeah, I agree. 
Dr. Carey, thank you so much for your time today. And I will pop your um, contacts in the uh, show notes. And um, you've just, like, you've really just answered like two or three of, do you know those questions that have just always been in my head? I'm like, oh, I wonder yeah. what Carrie would think about that. Now, <laughs> now I know, which is fantastic. Now you know. <laughs> uh, and so um, where can people find you? So on social media, I am at dr.carriejones. I'm on Instagram and I am just venturing into TikTok. Wish me oh, luck. Wow. Ugh. Um, but TikTok is a funny one. Is I, I don't know if you're on TikTok, but it is a funny one. Um, there are there are some really great educators on there as well that have oh. migrated over. So that's a fun one. And then I'm at my website is drdrcarryjones.com. Plus you can also find me at Rupa Health or RupaUniversity.com for practitioners. Amazing. Carrie, yes. thank you so much. Thank you so much. I adore Carrie and her account and it was such a pleasure to chat to her. So absolutely follow her if you don't already. Next week on the podcast, I talked to Professor Karen Esser all about circadian rhythms, biological rhythms and metabolic health. Such a geek out conversation, you are going to love it. Until then though, you can catch me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, over on Instagram and Twitter at Mickey Willardin, or over on my website, mickeywillardin.com, where in addition to that recipe portal access, you can book a one-on-one -on -one consultation, you can sign up to my fat loss plans, my real food nutrition plan, or you can just have a look at everything else that I'm doing. All right, team, have a great week. See you later. <music>